Conspiracy theories don't just operate by one person going into YouTube and getting down a rabbit hole of bad information. But the notion that communities believed bad information or inaccurate information, I mean, that's been around for as long as time. You know, for better and worse, America has always been a place where people were particularly attracted to exciting, impossible dreams, falsehoods as well as impossible dreams, and, and that it had been kept under some kind of control uh, or, or checks on it for centuries. And then the last 50 years, those checks and balances in lots of different ways uh, vanished. No, it's incredible. I mean, that you, the idea that you wouldn't teach hard histories because it makes kids uncomfortable, right? Especially white kids uncomfortable is what we're really talking about. It's astonishing, right? I mean, because kids of color obviously live that experience. By now, either you or someone you know may have said something like, I'm doing my own research. Of course, we hear this most recently around the COVID-19 vaccines. But does the internet actually allow for that? Is it even possible to do your own research? They then get connected to other like-minded individuals. And through those connections, they start to create uh, trusted systems for making sense of, of conspiracies and to the point where they actually feel real. Welcome to The Pivot, produced by the Gilling School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The Pivot features stories of impact, discovery, and surprise in public health, with an emphasis on the human element that helps make big macro ideas more relatable. My name is Matthew Chamberlain, and for this episode, we talked with three experts to help us better understand the effect conspiracy theories, misinformation, and technology can have on public health outcomes. We asked Dr. Francesca Tripodi, sociology professor and media scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Tripodi studies how Google and Wikipedia can be manipulated for political gain, and her conclusions may surprise you. How we search might be more revealing than what we search. And a lot of my research thinks about the ways in which the way we see the world to begin with shapes the kinds of keywords that we put into search bars. And so what I think a lot about as a sociologist in the 21st century is how the social construction of reality and how what we trust has increasingly become dependent on algorithmic decision making. And what's interesting to me when you look at algorithms and algorithms sound like magic, but they're actually not that complicated, right? You have a series of inputs and then they turn these into outputs. So for example, in the Google search bar, your inputs might be geographic location, search history, but your results are primarily driven by the keywords that you put in, known as a search query. They match this query with what information scientists refer to as relevance. And this relevance is highly connected to the keywords that you start with. And so what Dr. Tripodi is trying to do with her research is to better understand why these starting points are so polarized to begin with. So a really simple one I use frequently is if you go to the search bar and you search illegal alien, or you go to a search bar and you search undocumented worker, you are going to get dramatically different returns that likely confirm your existing beliefs because they're driven by relevance. So those key words, Google is taking those two words, illegal alien, or they're taking those two words, undocumented worker, 
and they're trying to match it with all the information that they have stored in their database. So those keywords are going to largely drive the results that are returned to you. And so that's where I think this social construction of reality when it comes to our trust and faith in search engines is so important because we, we think of Google as like a library <laughs> and they're not a helpful librarian, Shh. right? They are a multi-million dollar industry who's driven by stakeholder um, interests. This is a really important point, sort of a you get what you give or more crudely, Garbage in, garbage out. Only the most enlightened of us are aware of our biases, conscious or otherwise. But those biases, as Dr. Tripodi lays out, very often confirm what we already thought. The notion of confirmation bias is not new. Nor is the notion of filter bubbles, a term coined years ago by Eli Pariser. But what is the cost of acting on biased information? And is there really any such thing as a clean search? I came to research my current uh, topic for a few different reasons. One, after the election, the 2016 election of, of Donald Trump, there was a lot of narratives going around about, quote unquote, fake news. And to me, that really eliminated the potential agency of voters of Trump, right? So rather than thinking about why people might have been tricked into voting for him, I wanted to have a more nuanced understanding of how Persons who supported for Trump came to believe the information about him as true, valid, and factual. So exploring this notion of, quote unquote, alternative facts. That was number one. And two, I was really interested in this notion of filter bubbles. So a lot of people have heard about filter bubbles. Filter bubbles are the ways in which platforms organize information so that you tend to only get information that agrees with your existing position. There's been a lot of really great research that shows when you go on Facebook, for example, Facebook is only posting to your newsfeed comments or pictures that resonate with your current position. Dr. Tripodi has been studying this phenomenon for years, and she has a book, The Propagandist Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search and Threaten Democracy, due to be released in summer 2022. And while there is definitely, it's definitely true that these platforms are trying to curate your experience in a way that keeps you on your platform for as long as possible, again, I felt like there is some role of the user in this. So I come to all of my research with what is called an active audience paradigm. So what are the ways in which audiences are engaging with media in ways that programmers or creators might not predict or understand? To try to figure out how we got here, I wanted to talk to Kurt Anderson about his 2017 book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. In the 80s, Kurt was the publisher of the satirical Spy magazine. He also hosted Public Radio's Studio 360 for many years, earning a Peabody Award along the way. I also wrote a novel back in the aughts that came out in 2012 about the late 60s and the sort of various kinds of extreme belief that came out of the late 60s and early 70s and did research about that. And I, I started coming to a different understanding of how 
this belief in nonsense on various fronts had come to be. And then realized, as I started tracing it back to the 70s and 60s, like, no, 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 this goes back way further. One of the things that is striking to me, I think, in my lifetime is, is seeing the reversal of, or, or, you know, this sort of lack of faith in institutions, which has seemed to have been, it seems to have accelerated in the last four to six years, in my opinion, but maybe not. Um, and things that, you know, you could always sort of count on the Republicans felt this way about these institutions and the Democrats felt this way about the, and that, that seems to not only have inverted, but has almost been obliterated. What do you, how do you feel about that, that loss of that trust deficit that we seem to be living through now? Well, no, absolutely. That's true. And, and it was another thing that happened simultaneously in the sixties and seventies with, oh, I, I, man, I can believe whatever I want, you know, that, that kind of the kind of countercultural hippie version of that, together with all all the rest that was going on at that time. So I, I think that the you know the one-two punch of the debacle that was the Vietnam War with the the extension of that, which was the Watergate crimes, th th that all happened in a decade, right? From 1964 to 1974 was the Vietnam hyphen Watergate era, which I don't think we've recovered from the all the ways that that affected us for the worse. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I'm, I'm all for the 60s and early 70s in many, many ways. What happened culturally, socially, uh, in some ways economically. Lots of good came out of the 60s, but this undermining of trust in ourselves and institutions and experts and the establishment, some of which was, as I say, uh, derived from kind of leftish cultural trends and some of which was from the right, but and some of which were just a result of this, as I say, the, the lies and, and amorality underlying the, the, the war in Vietnam and its conduct and then and then the Watergate crimes as well. It's only been 50 years. Maybe maybe in another 50 or 20, we'll, we'll start recovering, but I don't think we have. And, and so that's where it began, I think. And, and people were given, Americans especially, were given or took license to believe or not believe in pick your institution. Any of the experts, any of the gatekeepers. And again, they're, they're, you know, it wasn't all great. I mean, you know, the gatekeepers were all white dudes, right? I mean, and, and, and so the fact that that was ended as a thing, good. But the idea that there are no gatekeepers or nobody who is any more to be trusted uh, about the wise course of things or what the facts of, say, a pandemic are or, or whatever is a real problem. Uh, I mean, there's the, the large problem is when we as a society can't agree on facts, that's a big problem. And that was sort of the, the final point of my book, Fantasy Line, but just in a day-to-day -day way of things like managing public health crises like we've just had in the last year and a half, that becomes a real problem. Obviously, the biggest difference between the Vietnam Watergate era and today is, of course, the internet and the resulting platforming of anyone with an internet connection and an opinion. One of the negative outcomes of that, in my view, is that absolutely everything becomes a matter of opinion. And all facts, right down to observable ones, like whether the sun is shining or not, become open for debate. So I'm a sociologist by training. My PhD is in sociology. And in many ways, yes, what I'm studying is very internet specific. 
with extent to how people find out information about conspiracies. And we could talk a little bit, if you wanted to, about the ways in which conspiracy theories are maximizing search engine optimization in order to really target audiences and feed them into these silos of misinformation and conspiratorial logic. Um, on the other hand, I think even back in the day of JFK assassinations or what was the radio podcast? Where War of the Worlds. Thank you. The War of the Worlds. Thank you. We take you now to Grover's Mills, New Jersey. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Spreading everywhere. Coming this way now. About 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, so even in situations with War of the Worlds, um, I think War of the Worlds is a great example. People interact with the medium at hand in ways that are not anticipated by the creators or the producers, right? So War of the Worlds very clearly said, this is not an actual alien attack, this is fiction, and yet people listen to that and took away with it what they wanted and shared it with their uh, significant others, with people that they trusted. And so this idea of information being more than one way, right? You have interlocutors with media, but you also have trusted people and, and trusted sources of information. And so conspiracy theories don't just operate by one person going into YouTube and getting down a rabbit hole of bad information. They then get connected to other like-minded individuals. And through those connections, they start to create uh, trusted systems for making sense of, of conspiracies and to the point where they actually feel real. Yes, internet complicates this in terms of reach, scope, how do we combat it? But the notion that communities believed bad information or inaccurate information, I mean, that's been around for as long as time. I want to pause here for a moment because this is a really great point. The notion that none of this is new is really important to internalize. Not even the internet is new. It just enables people to act on our most primal urge, to gather. When I was a kid, we blabbed on the phone all night or met at the arcade or at some other kid's house. Now we don't need to leave our houses to connect with each other. And we can debate over the quality of those connections, online versus in real life, but that's for another podcast. I actually don't think this is a new phenomenon. And something that I've been thinking a lot about as a sociologist is the way in which we frame institutions and how trust in certain institutions has become bifurcated. So in some ways, you have increasing, like, for example, trust in public education, an erosion of pub trust in public education from the right started in the 1950s with the Civil Rights Act because they did not, they wanted to maintain segregation and there was a concerted effort to privatize public institutions once there was a mandate by the federal government to make segregation illegal. And so there you see this very distinct push away from public institutions like transportation, public institutions like education, um, because they really were grounded in a white supremacist 
belief that black persons should not be educated or have access to public transportation. And that's where I think you see a really historical legacy around this erosion of trust in the federal government or this erosion of trust in the public sector like education. On the other hand, I think we also have to consider that institutions like the police or institutions like military or institutions like church really are uh, revered amongst many conservatives that I interviewed. So I think it's interesting because it's like we often think of institutions as um, all-consuming, but I think you're right in that we're seeing this bifurcated uh, division around like which institutions we trust and value and which institutions we should we should fund with public dollars. That erosion of trust that Dr. Tripodi is talking about can lead to polarization. Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris is a sociology professor at American University, where she leads the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL. I wanted to talk with her after reading her op-ed in the New York Times, released the day before the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. How widespread are these, you know, what I guess we'd call them counter-democratic forces? I mean, you actually, at the beginning of this, you used the word fringe, and that's a word that people use a lot. Are they fringe? Are they becoming not a majority, a plurality? Like, how bad is it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think on the threats to democracy side, I think it's really bad. And so, you know, we got added as a country to a list of backsliding democracies at the end of last year. Um, that's a really, like, blaring, you know, uh, red flag, neon lights. Uh, you know, when you look at what happens to countries who get added to that list, because I dug in, I was like, well, what actually does that mean when you get added to a list like that? It turns out that it takes about nine years on average for a country to move off that list in one way or the other, right? Either they collapse and are no longer a democracy, or they uh, move into restoration and they're, you know, they they recover. And I think that part of what we should be thinking about here is not just the immediate crisis of, of the mobilization of violence, but how do we intervene in a way that is a decade-long project to make sure we go in the direction of restoring? And so that is where the mainstreaming of some of this extremism comes in, because we're not just talking about violent extremism, we're talking about voter suppression, we're talking about massive disinformation campaigns that are undermining faith in elections and confidence in the electoral system, but that is contributing to violent threats against election workers, um, the undermining of mining of scientific expertise that is contributing to threats against healthcare workers and county officials who set health mandates. But people take their cues from leaders, not just from one another. And while privately, people might not have full faith in institutions like the CIA or Defense Department briefings, it's quite another thing when those entrusted with steering the ship of state start to not just give people permission to doubt, but in very real ways order them to distrust the institutions that we all rely on to navigate through both the mundane day-to-day of our lives, but also during crises such as COVID. Casting doubt and politicizing mask wearing, vaccines, and other public health interventions has taken an incalculable human toll. And there is a straight line to be drawn from encouraging hostility toward empirical evidence 
to the violence we see in restaurants, on airplanes, at school board meetings, right up to January 6th. The attacks on education and the calls for banning of books and censorship that is, you know, part of this idea of, um, you know, we shouldn't be teaching hard histories, but also about somehow coupled in with government control, like people really seizing onto this idea that they want um, freedom, you know, they want to control their own families' lives. And I think a lot of that backlash against the government, against mandates is all part of this pandemic era um, situation as well, where you're seeing the mobilization of, you know, I mean, women who voted for Biden, you know, who are, have been really lifelong Democrats, but being really swept up now in these movements um, against, you know, uh, school mask mandates because they want their children, you know, to have this experience, right? So really mobilizing that mama grisly kind of mode that Sarah Palin had talked about for so long, this, this um, you know, rejecting big government as part of your duty as a mother. And that kind of stuff is really, uh, is really connected to some of this mainstreaming that in ways that have been bubbling up for a long time, but we're just seeing uh, really crystallize, I think, in the pandemic. As we've already heard, misinformation and disinformation campaigns are as old as civilization itself. As humans, we seek validation for our own worldviews. But the human toll in the U.S. and around the world is a constant and sickening reminder that failure of leadership can have devastating consequences. Words matter. Facts matter. And yes, there is still such a thing as an objective set of facts, even ones you might not like. Donald Trump was a symptom of this process, this phenomenon that I chronicle in Fantasyland, but he didn't cause it. He did, I would say, raise it to a next level and had with the president of the United States encouraging people to believe in this specific case that, no, 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 you don't need masks, uh, it's not a big deal, and, and politicizing these basic public health ideas of masking and taking vaccines and all that. On the one hand, in, in some senses, you know, I, I often think, well, the, thank goodness this vaccine came when we had the technological ability to create a vaccine so quickly and all of the things that wouldn't have been true just 10 years ago, right? But then how unfortunate it is that it came along when we had reached this place where doctors, the CDC, how science works trying to figure things out, uh, the, the trust and all those things had, had declined so, so badly for so many reasons. And, and here we are. And it, it's not exactly suicide, but there is a kind of Jonestown aspect to this, this group decision for all these various reasons uh, to say, no, 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 I don't want this. I don't need this. It's a hoax. It's fake. Whatever their version of vaccine resistance, they have been encouraged by a president and a party and large influential media enterprises to, to go that way, and here we are. I mean, there have always been skeptics of vaccines and so forth, but it would not be, we would not be where we are if not for the, the politicization of this, I can believe whatever I want or disbelieve whatever I want thing that has, that has gotten out of control in this country over the last decades. But what does seem different today is the dehumanizing of your opponent. It's not just that you disagree with that person, it's that that person or that party is not legitimate. As Dr. Miller Idris observes, it's as if it has no right to even exist. But the one that disturbs me the most is 
the data showing increasing percentages of Americans who see the other uh, party or the other group, whatever it is, as evil. We call that moral disengagement. And moral disengagement scales have been increasing across the board, both especially in partisan ways. Democrats and Republicans have been going up. And that leads to, that can really lead to dehumanization. It leads to, you know, seeing the other as subhuman. Um, we've been seeing, you know, really strange numbers on things like, you know, uh, you know, would you want your child, how would you react if your child married, a you know, someone who's part of the other party, right? Like those kinds of numbers are just showing that we're incredibly divided in ways that aren't just about political differences, but really about losing our humanity toward the other. And that is the kind of warning sign that you see when you start to see kind of um, larger scale, potentially larger scale violence. Again, in ways I try not to be too alarmist about, but but it is a red flag. And so those are the kinds of things that say we definitely need more community-based healing, more interaction, engagement on levels that help people reconnect, not just in these online spaces where it's really easy to tear each other down, but face-to-face -face in ways that you're confronted with each other's humanity and have to be in conversation with each other and understand we have to live together. An early example of how the internet acted as an accelerant also happened around vaccines in the late 90s. I remember this well because my own children were newborns and of the age when you begin the childhood sequence of vaccines. Google came along, search came along, and Google specifically came along in 1998. What else happened in 1998? The, the false purported medical study that, that arguing that, uh, you know, vaccines cause autism. So it was a, that was a, you know, perfect first case study of how falsehood and panicky viral belief gets out of control thanks to this new mechanism we have, uh, which is to say the internet. Uh, yeah, it's a real problem. And, and we, you know, what, what are we now? 25 plus years in, we still haven't figured out how to drive this car. We haven't figured out how to deal with it, how to regulate it with it, what, how, what, our, what our personal norms are, how much or how little we should or shouldn't believe. You know, we've had critical thinking, I guess, in classes and media, literacy and all those, but intermittently and passingly. I, I, I think we, and that's just one thing I think we need to do to figure out how to raise ourselves, raise our children, raise our grandchildren to, to understand what they're seeing. But as new information or new circumstances, such as a global pandemic emerge, there exist what are called data voids. We all know nature abhors a vacuum, so where there's a void, someone will be there to fill it. A data void is when little to no good information about a subject exists online. And when there are these kind of pockets of returns, it allows them to be manipulated very easily. Conspiracy theorists are really good at maximizing and taking advantage of data voids. So one thing, but again, this relates back to my concept of how you see the world shapes your keywords to begin with. So an example that I give a lot is thinking about vaccines. Now, if you Google something like, are vaccines safe, with a question mark, um, the CDC has preemptively filled that void with a lot of good information that tells you, hey, they're pretty safe. You know, you, it's a good idea to do it. They help curb disease and the chances of adverse reactions are very small. But something that I think about is if I am a mom 
who is on these uh, mom groups. Because if you look, think about Facebook, there are groups that are called, for example, Parents Against Vaccination or um, Holistic Parenting. And they are not for vaccinating your children. So if I'm part of that group already, I'm not going to Google, are vaccines safe? Because I fundamentally already don't think they are. I am part of a community that tells me they aren't. I'm part of a community that shares information that makes me scared or worried. And so I might Google something like, how do I get my child out of vaccination? And when you Google that, you get information for how to get exemptions for your child to get out of vaccinations. And interestingly, you get correlated searches, like why should you not vaccine or something like that. So how Google orders information and its desire to help drive search, um, best match your query, is not an environment that's going to expose you to good information if your starting point is at a place where good information doesn't exist <laughs> necessarily. And so I think it absolutely relates to, to public health crises. If we can point to the launch of Google in September 1998 as sort of the beginning of search, that's less than 25 years ago. And yet, in that incredibly short space of time, the internet and search have become invaluable resources in our lives. But how well do we understand how it all works? I mean, there are tons of things in life we rely on, and yet we have no idea how they work. Cars, how do planes stay airborne, dry cleaning. But not understanding what's under the hood of our car does not have the same consequences or the same outcomes. So what can be done? Media literacy is taught in K-12, but how might we all benefit from it? And what do we mean when we say media literacy anyway? People are still more inclined to trust a .org or a .gov than they are a .com because they think .org means something <laughs> more. And actually, you can register as a dot. You don't have to have any qualifications to register as a .org. And so what people think is that ORGs are somehow institutions of education or like nonprofits, and so then therefore non-nefarious with their information. So I'd say one of it has to be more education on, okay, just simple things. A .com and a .org and a .edu and a .gov, what do these mean and how might they help you or not, right? Determine if the information you're getting is, is good. Secondly, I think there needs to be more um, of a focus on what I'm talking about with the keywords. And I think that really gets into more nuanced education around how algorithms work. I think most people, not, not just K through 12, but most people have absolutely no idea what they're doing when they search in Google. You know, we kind of have an idea of like, oh, if you put it in quotation marks versus not, or you put, you know, you use the bouillon like and versus or. But like, in general, we still don't have, I think, a very good idea of how these algorithms are working. 
Now, part of that, again, is on the company. Um, you know, these are proprietary algorithms. They don't want to share how they work. And I don't think necessarily we need to force Google to have an open index, but I think there does need to be more transparency about how they're ordering information so that people can have a better idea about how they're getting the information that they're getting. Changing behaviors and habits of populations is a daunting but not impossible task. In the world of medicine, you know, we essentially made great leaps on the treatment of certain kinds of diseases like cardiac disease or diabetes once we realized that you it wasn't effective to only treat the symptoms of a disease but that you also have to you also have to engage with communities to educate them in ways that prevent the incidence of that disease to begin with by helping them make you know attitudinal and behavioral um, choices and changes in their lives that lead them to not develop disease as, as quickly as they would otherwise on a whole as a community. Dr. Miller Idris believes that interventions once reserved only for public health might have something to teach us about how to tell the difference between propaganda and truth. We, at about 10 years ago, saw the problem of gun violence in the U.S. Um, get identified in the same way as now a public health crisis, and that opened up all new lines of research. So seeing research on public health, or on gun violence in communities as part of the Center for Disease Control's responsibility and not just the Department of Homeland Security, let's say. And I think that's where we are with the kind of prevention that we're talking about around disinformation and propaganda and also the mobilization of violent extremism is that treating that as a public health problem would require seeing it as a challenge that you have to defend from within the mainstream and by equipping the mainstream with some of these tools to be better consumers of information, more critical thinkers about the propaganda that will inevitably come their way these days um, online, and better able to make choices that are you know, in their interests and not undermining the interests of themselves, their families, or their communities. So what's to be done? How can we all become better consumers of potentially harmful online media? And does the government have a role to play regulating the internet like any other public utility? What I, my hope is, is that if we have a better understanding of how we're being manipulated, people will want to seek out information that challenges those tropes or that challenges those efforts. I don't think people want to feel like they're puppets on strings. But what's scary to me is that most of us don't understand how our queries are directed, right? So I think in some ways those strings are controlled by corporate interests, the large firms that control most of our access to information. On the other hand, I think it's controlled by, by political interests and you have uh, political actors that are pushing out information, understanding how information flows, challenging people, oh, just do it, don't believe me. Don't believe me, do it, look it for yourself. Knowing that when they look for themselves, they're gonna be returned to information that they want them to read. And so my hope for the future is that we get a more nuanced understanding of how these algorithms work because we are so dependent on them. And most of us have absolutely no idea what they're doing, how they direct us to information, and what the returns even mean. 
And then also us thinking about how those starting points are shaped by us and that we do have the ability to change that query in a different direction. I think it's this is the worst period of time we've had since the 1960s. You know, then we entered a period where, of course, we had Oklahoma City. I mean, there were there were episodic moments of terrible violence and then 9-11. But we have had a long period of time where I think, you know, we hadn't really seen that kind of ordinary political instability. And this is probably this is as this is as bad as it's been in 50 years. Um, you know, so I, I don't know whether I'm not a historian, you know, I can't compare it to previous eras of, uh, you know, of instability. But certainly I think for most people, in, you know, who are under the age of 50 or 60 years old, this is probably the worst, you know, time that they've experienced in their own lives, right? Unlike a lot of things that are wrong in this country, which can be fixed, you know, the economic problems, the fairness problems, some of the racism, structural racism problems, those can be fixed or addressed. This stuff, I, I, I really have my doubts. So I, that, that it can be done from on high. I mean, I, I think everybody with a platform has an obligation to sort of say, no, all truths are not equal. There are not, you know, your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, whatever. I, I think it's it's incumbent upon us to believe in a in a certain basic empirical, rational, reasonable, scientific, evidence-based version of reality to plant that flag and and risk being jerks when we tell our brother-in-law that no, there are no chips in the vaccine or or whatever. And, so, and, and but I think it's so those of us with platforms have that obligation and, and ability, but I think just each of us in our lives, to not put up with the, uh, the, the kind of epidemic nonsense. That's what we can do. I, I, I really, there's no laws to pass, but I think it's mostly up to us, each of us, and in, in, our, in whatever way we can to, to sort of uh, stand firm. I am somewhat hopeful that, that younger people, you know, digital natives are less easily hoodwinked, not immune to hoodwinking, but less easily hoodwinked by, by things online because they've grown up with it and, and understanding that they have to figure out on their own how credible X, Y, or Z is as opposed to older folks who just like, well, it's on, it's on my computer along with ABC News, must be true, right? That, that's the problem and that's, that's where we are. Thanks for listening to The Pivot, brought to you by the Gilling School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Matthew Chamberlain, and we'll talk to you next time on The Pivot.